This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Tuesday, June 11th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Joe Biden made a horrible statement that caused a lot of consternation. Brace yourself. Gets pretty terrible what he's going to say right here. You know, uh, a lot of you understand that uh, what loss is and when loss occurs, you know uh, that, you know, people come up to you and tell you, I understand if you lose a, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a family member. And, uh, um, and lots of times you feel like saying, you know, they say, I know how you feel. And if they hadn't, you look at them, you, you know, they mean well, but you say you have no idea how I feel. But when it happens to you, you know, that's why I've uh, worked so hard in my career to make sure that uh, I promise you, uh, if I'm elected president, you're going to see the single most important thing that changes in America is we're going to cure cancer. Uh, you think I'm- yeah, that's right. That monster wants to cure cancer. Dick. OK, let's just stipulate that a promise to cure cancer isn't a likely promise that is to be kept. But it is better than the current president's windmill-based misdiagnosis of cancer, and also Donald Trump's ever-burning coal love, which will certainly cause cancer. You know what the real cancer is? Cruelty and the internet and prostate, lung, and thyroid. Those are just some of the cancers. So when I heard that Joe Biden announced he wanted to cure cancer, or promise to find a cure, not necessarily that he'd be the guy in the lab coat doing the work. It was presented via the internet as a conscious, well-thought-out policy pronouncement that he had a list of agenda items he could have chosen, and he went with cancer. Yeah, 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 global warming this and income inequality that. Cancer. I'm going with cancer. But to me, I mean, you heard it. It was more amusing, unattached to anything real, perhaps a little doddering and unrealistic, but no cause to scream into the winds or Twitter, you just don't get it, Biden, you don't understand what our country needs. And the wailing and the pulling out of the hair could be a sign you have scalp cancer. Over and over again, I run into this phenomenon, where I'm in a position of being a little confused and put off by the deep and abiding Biden loathing and at the same time, fairly unimpressed with the actual Biden campaigning. Oh, well, if we know one thing, it's this. Joe Biden has just made inroads with the Democrats who hate cancer, while also clearly alienating the Democrats who define cancer as Joe Biden. On the show today, you know, yesterday's spiel went on for a while. So today's will be pithier, and it is on the subject of political pithiness. But first, Michael Brendan Dougherty had a father from Ireland and a mother from New Jersey. He chose not to write a memoir about New Jersey. So up next, the National Review contributor's new book about religion, identity, and country, My Father Left Me Ireland. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Michael Brendan Dougherty grew up in New Jersey and then in Putnam County, New York, and didn't have a real connection to his father. His father was living in Ireland. And then later, when he became a father himself, he got reconnected to his past through his daughter, through the language of his father, through the experiences he imagined that he might have had. His book, My Father Left Me, Ireland, An American Son's Search for Home, is about that. But it's also, and if you know Michael Brendan Dougherty, who writes for National Review, you. It's also about politics, thinking about nationalism, issues of family and faith and who we are as a people. Great to meet you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I love the book and it was blessedly short, but that means that it was really pointed. Was there was this one of those books where the original manuscript was a lot longer than the 200 pages you handed in? Oh, no, no, no. This this was, um, you know, in a, in a way I almost stretched it out. Um I wanted it to be compact and right. partly I think, you know, it's funny, everyone's describing it as memoir and mm -hmm. I didn't, I thought of it more as of like an argument that I dressed up in memoir and um, I don't believe like I'm the interesting thing in it. So I wanted to focus on the experiences, the ideas, the, uh, the history. Yes, that's true. You're like the touchstone. You're in all these chapters, but what we're asked to engage with isn't necessarily your processing of those events, either at the time or in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. So like you'll be standing next to your father watching hurling. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the, the, the point isn't your feelings about hurling or your feelings about the father or your father. It's about what this says about the larger argument that you're making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I wanted to show, not tell, right? Yeah. That, yeah, like that the that scene you just mentioned is at the beginning of the book and I talk about, you know, being in my early 30s standing next to my father and we're standing at a hurling match in Finglas in Dublin. Best place. Best place to watch hurling. And uh yeah, it was well it's like a local club match and you know, when the the ball or the slitter it hits someone's hand in front of the goal, he's like right there in his Dublin accent, you know, bury it. And I'm like a second too late and sound very American standing next to him. And I just thought it, it, it that image from real life really did show and it resonated with me of, of this distance between my father and I and uh, illustrated this this somewhat broken connection between us. So let's go back to the beginning. Sure. What were the circumstances of your birth, son? <laughs> <laughs> so um, my mother was kind of a, somewhat of a free-spirited woman and was kind of uh, traveling around Europe, making friends. And she had a best friend, an Irish Londoner. And they went out one night with this Irish Londoner, Teresa. She's my godmother, actually, with her boyfriend and then her boyfriend's friend, who was turned out to eventually become my father. My parents had a like summer romance, basically, on two continents, in Europe and in America. And I was the result my mother informed my father that I was impending into this world by letter, but he wouldn't see me until I was almost a year old. Yeah. So um, he just returned to his life in Dublin. He 
went back to an old girlfriend. They formed a family, and he's been a, a loving husband and father ever since. How much did you identify as Irish? I mean, your name is Michael Brendan Dougherty, so there is no escaping that. But it waxed and waned your yeah. identification with Absolutely. your Irishness throughout your life? Absolutely. So we grew up in this, at the beginning of my life, in this neighborhood in Bloomfield, New Jersey, Halcyon Park, which was like, it seemed like centuries ago or millennia ago, Irish and Italians had divided this land mm-hmm. among themselves. And and divided themselves occupationally, that like the Irish were going to be cops and civil servants, as my grandfather was. Um, he was in the IRS. And the Italians would own the local businesses, which were also fronts for criminal activity. And then we would all get together church on Sunday at a church that we kept the Polish people out of <laughs> somehow. So, yeah. that So, like, it just as a little kid, it was like you're Italian or you're Irish or they're you're Jewish or, or black if you're from outside of our immediate neighborhood. And somewhere down south, there are these Baptists. And um, that's fitting because it's hot down there. It's closer to hell um, where they're going to go. So anyway, yeah. And my mother was, you know, in her heart sickness over this love affair with an Irish man. And maybe for my benefit, she she took me to Irish cultural festivals and she kind of you know, took me to these immersion weekends of speaking Irish only. And, and, uh, we would, she would say goodnight to me in Irish, Ihiwai, um, or, or close the door, Dunandoras. And, uh, you know, so that, that was part of the background. And that was actually an unusual thing for an Irish, a very unusual thing for an Irish American. You know, we would meet with Irish emigres in immigrants coming over from Ireland in the 1980s. Ireland was economically, depressed and, um, you know, the people would be arriving in Queens or in Boston where, you know, one of my mother's friends was. So there were just Irish people coming in and out of life. It seemed like Ireland was close in some way. We would visit Ireland. Uh, Irish music was playing in the house. So I was given this. Now, it wasn't the only thing I was given. I still had like Winnie the Pooh and Sesame Street and eventually MTV and everything else that comes with an American childhood at that time. But that was something that was surrounding me. And also there was this sense of, there was a sense of maybe we're going to move there someday Mm -hmm. to be closer to my father. Explicitly said or? It was implied. Actually, you know, it was funny. um, When I was seven or eight, my mother tried to move us to London, actually. She had been very happy there. Uh, It would have been closer to my father and she would have been closer to her best friend. And um, after my mother died, I found, like, the correspondence she had with the home office. Hmm. But eventually she decided against it because she didn't want to take me out of my friend groups. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the politics of Ireland and how yeah. and if that has affected your political stances. I was always, to me, I'm a Galophile. I've always been fascinated oh, by nice. the IRA. And the reason is because I'm drawn to things that upend my either expectations or the general rule of thumb. And if we're told that terrorism usually doesn't work and it's certainly immoral, you could look at what the IRA did as counter to that. Not that there weren't excesses, but oh they God, were yeah. fighting for for a righteous cause, and it does seem to have worked. I mean, the Good Friday Agreements, without a forceful military part of um, Irish nationalism, I don't know that there that those would be in place now. It's interesting. You know, there are different phases of Irish nationalist struggle. And growing up in the 80s, my mother was wearing a bracelet for political prisoners in Northern Ireland. Right. 
This was a big. This was a big. This was really engaged yeah. in the in the in this part of the American Irish diaspora that was itself engaged in the struggle, you know, and literally like you know. You know, I talk about being at bars where the caps were passed around for the widows and orphans of West Belfast, and you put money into them. And my mother knew what that money was for. Which is the guns and the guns. ammunition. Although, honestly, it probably was for Whitey Bulger's coal cabot. Yeah, there's a little bit of grift involved, too. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. They didn't set off, if you did a, an accounting, they didn't set off that many bombs well, when compared to the amount of money that they raised. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um... She was engaged in it in that way. My father would have been in Dublin a little bit cooler to the Sinn Feiners uh, and all that. It's, uh, you know, George Orwell has this great passage in an essay on nationalism where he says it's very easy to be nationalist about a country you're not in. Yeah. To transfer your nationalism to another country because you're not bearing the costs of it. I'm caught in the middle between my parents on the, on these questions. I, I understand the the reason the... Northern Irish, Irish Catholics wanted to fight for a united Ireland, uh, even a united socialist Ireland. I also feel I understand why unionists wanted to resist this. But this was part of the background noise. I had this unusually nationalistic upbringing in a, in a way yeah. uh, of knowing these songs, this being engaged in politics. And, um, you know, did terrorism work? I mean, listen, <laughs> there was a tremendous cost. You're talking about nearly 3,000 people dead in a very small portion of the world over 30 years. Uh, the, You know, the Good Friday Agreement, Peter Hitchens, an English writer, the brother of Christopher Hitchens, he, he considers it a surrender to the IRA. You yeah. Know, a slow motion surrender because it, it, you know, the IRA's political prisoners were released Jerry Adams, Martin McGinnis get to come into a power sharing agreement mm -hmm. with with Ulster unionists, and it provides for eventually a referendum. The result of which is if if a majority of Northern Irish people vote to join the Irish Republic, um, and a majority in the Irish Republic votes f to accept them, that that territory will be ceded to Ireland again. Do you think that the fact that America is not organized, our tribalism is not organized along sectarian lines, and Ireland's wasn't along ethnic lines, but that's another thing too. Is that progress or does that damn us more? That we don't even have these, that all we have are, you know, self mostly self-appointed uh, ideas, ideological tribes, and it's still just as rigid. Well, I think the ideological tribes grow out of some of the, the uh you know, religious and, and racial divisions. They do, but then when you ways. look at the, the college-educated white people from the South or wherever, so different from the non-college-educated, you, you do wonder. I mean, it's oh, a yeah, yeah. No, 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 you do wonder. No, I think class is a part of, uh, certainly a part of it, of which education is a part. And, um, you know, Jody uh, Bottom wrote a book years ago called An Anxious Age, which, which beautifully renders how in a way, the mainstream Protestant upwardly mobile or, or wealth holding part of society, uh, even if they've stopped going to church, uh, their kind of moral impulses are still considered the the correct and respectable ones in society and people assimilate to them. Right. And I think I, f I feel like I see that myself like in this 
slight realignment uh, of white people in the two major parties where, you know, Pete Buttigieg is like, yes, I'm an Episcopalian and I'm for this kind of moral vision. And you see Catholics and evangelicals who used to be hardcore Democrats. Many of them have come into the Republican Party and they're sort of bringing their their populist politics or their statist politics into it. So so I, th- I think those e- even if you though those lines or tribal lines are attenuated, I think they still matter. How is it that Ireland is such a I, – I mean, I, we perceive that they just had a vote to allow abortion, but they're pretty societally conservative, and yet their politics – I suppose their Taoiseach is maybe center-right, Taoiseach is center-right, but, I mean, Mary Robinson and so many of their other political figures are really – and I'm and now talking about uh, the Republic of Ireland – are, are very, very liberal. Why? How is it that they're socially conservative, politically liberal, and what does that offer to the United States? Irish people, the struggle of Irish independence often was against who they viewed as conservative Tory leaders in the United Kingdom. So the, there hasn't been a, a deep conservative tradition that's native to Ireland, mm-hmm. even though Edmund Burke himself was born in Dublin. So that's part of it. The social conservatism... I think it's gone away in many in many ways in in recent decades, as we've seen in the votes for gay marriage or uh, abortion rights. Um, but the the demand for for social consensus, I think, remains that Ireland has at least publicly. This isn't true among in private conversation, but publicly, there's a tendency in Ireland, and I think this is true for many small nations, for you to settle on a political orthodoxy that is. This is what we think and we need to hold on to it because this is our method of surviving or getting through to the next age. And right now that political orthodoxy in Ireland is, you know, economically very open to the world, very liberal, very inviting of foreign direct investment. And socially, it's a bit more like let's uh, reformist and liberal. In a way, it's like the 90s in, in, in the, the 90s have, have taken root in Ireland and the 90s are more <laughs> intensely felt there, whereas everywhere else in Europe and America, that dream, the Clintonite, Blairite dream is is dying or dead, but it's alive in Ireland. My father left me Ireland, an American son's search for home. Michael Brendan Dougherty is that son. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And now the spiel. Did you miss the president's press gaggle today? I'll catch you up. He said this about Joe Biden. I think he's the weakest mentally. And I like running against people that are weak mentally. I think Joe is the weakest up here. Adding, in case we were confused by his stance. Joe Biden is a dummy. The president said this about Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Nancy is a mess. And the president criticized China for playing the tariff game this way. China will subsidize companies. While bragging about his policy that in America, he plays the tariff game this way. Uh, We gave $16 billion to the farmers to make up for the deficit with China. We gave them $16 billion. We don't give them anything. They earn it because they're patriots. There are two kinds of patriots who Trump reveres. The suckers who supposedly stand by him while his policies take food off their tables. And these other kind of patriots who are the cornerstone of the concessions that North Korea has already made. The patriots who are coming back in boxes years after the fact. The remains keep coming back. Uh Uh-huh. No word on the results of DNA tests on those remains. 
You know, the North Koreans once shipped to the United Kingdom what they said were remains of an airman. No, it was animal bones. Some other things were said by Trump, all of equal substance to what you just heard. You know, when I got into media, there was a concern that news clips were getting shorter. The sage grouses of media criticism and academic departments and grant-funded enterprises would do studies documenting the fact that the average news soundbite was diminishing. In fact, uh, here's a clip from 2011, NPR talking to a reporter named Craig Fairman. The length of political sound bites shrank from 43 seconds in 1968 all the way down to nine seconds in 1988. Cause for concern. And yet, I can't remember the last time I thought that what we just need was more Donald Trump talking. Because if sound bites are unsound in the very important category of truth, then less is more. It is understandable that we were concerned about this once, but we were really fighting a different fight back then. We had mostly effective mechanisms to hold public figures to some semblance of truth. One way for politicians back then to evade and avoid scrutiny was to boil everything down to a short soundbite. It was a symbiotic relationship. The news wanted short soundbites, politicians delivered, and everyone was happy, if not overly informed. Politicians used the abbreviated format to fool the public at times, and it would seem that the networks were happy enough to play it. But it wasn't a rash of untruths. It was just a flaw in the system that had evolved. But now it's quite the opposite. When Donald Trump goes on and on and on for two hours speaking to the CPAC conference, no person in their right mind thinks, well, thank God he's not being hemmed in. Now we will be able to get to some real policy detail. In fact, the headline in the Toronto Star of that event by Daniel Dale, the dean of the Trump prevarication beat was 60 false claims in two hours. Trump's CPAC speech was by far his most dishonest single event as president. Of course it was. We went from a time of constraint and limited media culture where depth was at a premium to where we are now, which is exactly the opposite. Now depth, or at least volume, rough synonym, is unlimited. And the struggle is accountability, not the quest for more and more details. And we didn't see it coming. Or more precisely, we were too optimistic about what would be the corrective to the tyranny of the soundbite. Because soundbites actually don't lead to tyrants. Tyrants, or propagandists, are actually prone to go on and on at length in diatribes to the masses. The NPR report that I quoted earlier saw the trends coming down the pike as mostly a positive. There is one significant development in recent years— Online platforms like YouTube and Twitter allow politicians to reach the public directly. That development was actually more than significant. It was seismic. And while I have no affection for fitting all the president has to say within a 22-minute newscast or the three-minute portion thereof that covers the president's pronouncements, that more confined world probably would have been a sufficient defense against Donald Trump. I don't think that forcing pith upon politicians is inherently better than the current atmosphere of prolixity, but I've also come to feel it's not inherently worse. In summation, there is 
one thing I feel I can do to personally stand against the ravages of loquacity, and it is this. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader, who wish a curse upon you, Oliver Cromwell, who raped our motherland. I hope you're rotting down in hell for the horrors that you sent to our misfortunate forefathers, who you robbed of their birthright to hell or Connet. May you burn in hell tonight. T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, thinks she's going to hurl. The gist, you know, maybe curing cancer is Joe Biden's overture to Mitch McConnell, the senator from Cigarettes and Coal, who could use a little nudge towards bipartisanship. Oomperu de Peru and thanks for listening. <laughs>